So let us pray and give thanks to God. Father, I want to thank you that uh, you've given us your word. Your word where we learn how good you are. We learn how loving you are, how gracious you are. We learn your plan that you don't just create us and leave us, but you made a way for us to be in relationship with you forever. And we can learn about the future. We can learn about where you want us to be in the future. And that is with you. So Lord, prepare our hearts. Open our hearts to understand your word, to receive it and apply it to our lives, that it may change us for all the more to be like Christ, to be a witness in this world. Lord, we love you so much because you love us. Amen. Thanks, Cassia. The first part of this Bible reading is from Revelation 21, verses 1 to 6. Then I saw a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself would be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. The second part of the Bible reading is from verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is his lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On, the, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever.
Great. Thanks so much, Cassia. Uh, if you're heading out to Creche, now's the time to do that. Um, and, uh, but otherwise, let's get stuck into this. Can I just pray for us as we begin as well, again? Our Father, please help us now. Open our eyes and our hearts to hear your word, to, to take it into ourselves and to live in its light. And we pray that for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, people have always been fascinated by predictions of the end of the world, haven't they? Uh, one recent one was connected, maybe you heard about this, there was apparently an ancient Mayan calendar um, that, if you read it a particular way, predicted the end of the world in 2012. Uh, 2012. Apparently it led to a huge upsurge in sales for survival kits. Uh, and they, they even made a movie about it. Uh, you might have seen the movie, 20, it's called 2012. Um, but we're fascinated, aren't we, by these end-of-the-world scenarios uh, from environmental collapse to nuclear fallout to zombies taking over the world. I mean, there's so much out there. And, and we're, we're, our culture is kind of fascinated by this idea, right? Well, what about Christians? How do we think about that? How do we relate to this? It seems to me there's a couple of extremes that we can tend towards when thinking about the end, the end of everything. Uh, on the one hand, it can be possible for these questions about the end to kind of become all-consuming. <clears throat> if you see, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, if you see the Bible like a, a code to crack, figuring it out can sort of dominate your Christian life. Uh, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, for lots of Christians, this idea of the end is something that, frankly, we're pretty apathetic about. Uh, something that's not really relevant to our lives here and now. Uh, maybe something that we're kind of embarrassed about. Well, I want to suggest that both of those approaches, neither of them is the right one for us to take. Neither of them is the right one. Kind of obsessing with figuring out the details of the last things, uh, I want to suggest is not itself actually biblical. Uh, that's because in the Bible, the end is not primarily about a set of events or predictions to decode. Uh, in the Bible, the end is primarily about a person, about the one who is himself, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The end, hopefully we'll see this all the way through this series, the end is all about Jesus. On the other hand, ignoring or putting off thinking about the end is just as unbiblical, uh, and has massive implications for us, I think. A big part of the sin that we struggle with, it seems to me, or maybe just the joylessness that we experience in life, I, I think a big part of that is that God's end for this world is just too far from our thoughts. It's too remote in the landscape of our life. So what we're going to do over the next five weeks is to hear the story of the end of everything according to the Bible. Uh, one of the important things to see as we're going to kick off this series is that uh, the way the Bible uses that idea of the end in a couple of different ways. Uh, one way is to talk about the end point, the final moment. And that's kind of what we often think about when we think about this whole issue, the end points. Uh, the last bit. Uh, but the other really important way the Bible uses this idea is to talk about the end uh, of something, meaning its, its goal or its purpose, the direction it's heading in, the reason for its existence. 
That's its end. So, so to ask the question about the end of everything uh, is not just to ask about the final events in history. It's actually to ask a much deeper question. What is the purpose, the goal, the reason for everything? And that big question <laughs> leads to a much more personal question. If this is the end of creation, the direction everything's heading in, then how do I fit into that? What is the end of my life? The purpose that I was created for? Well, the Bible tells a beautiful and a transforming story about this end. And we'll see it develop over the next few weeks, I hope. But what we're going to do today is just focus on the bookends of, this, of that story. Um, the, the very first and the very last chapters of the whole Bible. Uh, that's because one of the key things about this, the Bible's vision of the end, is that it's an, it's an end, it's a goal, it's a direction that was there right from the very beginning, from beginning to end. So here's my attempt at a bit of a summary of this, what we're going to kind of look at today. And you can see it written down in your outline if you have that there. But it's, here it is in picture form. So uh, here's my attempt at a summary. The great purpose of God in creation was for his own glory, to make a people in his image who would rule over his place and enjoy his loving presence forever. For his own glory to make a people in his image, to rule over his place, and forever enjoying his loving presence. Well, uh, what I want to do today is sort of a big overview of these opening and closing chapters of the Bible to see how this purpose, this end, comes through at the beginning and the end. Uh, I want us to see the way in which God's sovereign hand is working all history towards this end so that what was begun in creation will be perfectly realised on the day that he makes everything new. So, uh, if you have Bibles, you can open them up to the very first page, Genesis 1, uh, and we'll think a little bit about that, hopefully through the week. If you're in home groups, you've had a chance to already think this through. But when you open Genesis 1, um, there's so much in there, and it can, actually, it can be easy to just skim over the first few words, but there's something really important there. Very first verse, very first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God. It's this epic opening, right? Before anything, before time and space, there was God himself. And there's this fundamental distinction in the Bible. There's God and there's everything else. And everything else comes from and is made by God. Well, as you, as you read through the Bible, we see more and more of who this God is. He is three persons eternally united in love. He's not three gods, but three persons with one divine essence. 
He is, he is the Father loving his Son in the joy of the spirits. And the Bible says, in the beginning, there was this triune, this trinity, this God of love. This God who is love himself. And this isn't just playing with words. It's not just kind of some weird theological issues. It's actually really fundamental to everything else. Why does God create the world? Why Why does God create you and me? It's not because he was lonely. It's not because there was some lack within himself. No, he perfectly existed for all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit. No, God doesn't create because he's of some lack in himself. God creates, the sort of consistent teaching of the Bible is that God creates for his own glory. For his own glory. You see this in a really powerful verse in Isaiah, which we'll get to sometime soon, I hope. Isaiah 43 Verse 7 says, God speaks through Isaiah about his scattered people, and he says, he calls them, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Uh, or again, if you turn to Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, for, uh, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So you see what this does? It puts God at the center. That's sort of the big point here. Put God at the center. And it's so important for us to have that as we start off. You are not the center. I am not the center. God is the center. And as long as we try to live with ourselves in the center, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be sort of cutting against the grain. We're going to be going against the way we were made to live. God is the centre. His glory and not yours is the goal. But here's where this gets so wonderful, friends. What does God's glory look like? It's not a kind of self-seeking glory like ours so often is. Because God, remember who God is? Because God is love in himself. Father, Son and Spirit. Because he is love, he brings glory to himself by sharing his love with his creatures. God's glory is to share his goodness with what he has made. And that's what you see as you read through these first chapters of Genesis, right? Uh, All the way through, God creates, and what is it? It's good. It's good. It's good. And then the high point comes in verse 26 of chapter 1. It should be on the screen. And God said... Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move on the ground, everything. Uh, so, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So in this good creation, God creates a people. And at the very end of the chapter, it's been good, good, good all the way through. But here it's very good with these these people, the high point of his creation in his image. It's very good. So he creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, 
Uh, they're both equal in his image, created with dignity and purpose. Then when you get to chapter 2 of Genesis, the, kind of, the, the camera goes from this high, this big picture view, it zooms in on this, um, on this creation of the man and the woman. And what, you do get a sense there, though, that there is a particular responsibility placed on Adam. He's made first, Eve is made from his side, and the Bible talks about Adam as if he's the kind of representative of the whole human race. We're all, in some sense, in him. He's, uh, he's kind of our head, our, uh, the, the representative. We're, we're organically and spiritually connected to him. And, and so what God does is he makes humanity, this humanity in Adam, to be rulers over his world. And we saw that as we read through verse 28. What's the, what are they to do? They're to fill the earth and subdue it. So for his glory, God creates this people in his image who would reign over his place. But what is his place? Uh, in his good creation, God places a good garden. He places a good garden. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 15 the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So this garden is like, it's an image of God's special rule through these people he has made. Uh, Adam, Adam and Eve are to care for this garden, but also to grow it, to fill the earth, uh, to, to kind of expand the borders of this garden so that it extends over the whole of the world. So there's this good garden, but there's one more key thing here that I want to just highlight. How are we going? This very good creation. And this garden, the, the other key thing I really want to highlight is this very good creation enjoyed the intimate and direct presence of God. The direct presence of God. You, and you get that really from the very first verses. So if you flick your eyes back to chapter 1, uh, right in verse 2, you see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. It's sort of this intimate image. And then as you read through, the, word, the Spirit of God is hovering. The Word of God goes out from him to create everything. Uh, and as, as you read this through kind of a New Testament lens, you, hopefully that's ringing some bells for you if you know the opening of John's Gospel where he talks about Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Everything was made through him. So you get this picture in Genesis, though, of this intimate presence of God. As you keep reading, we didn't get to this, but in chapter 3, it's even physical. God walks with them in the garden. All right. Uh, we've skimmed over a lot of stuff, I know, but that's kind of this big picture that we get at this point of the goal of God in his creation, the end for which he created the world. What I want to do now is to jump over to the reading that uh, Cassia read out for us earlier. Uh, I want us to see how, just, uh, just to quickly see how, how this good end that was, was established in the garden is perfectly realised in the new heavens and the new earth. It's in this book of Revelation. Revelation was a letter to seven churches written by John, and he shares this vision given to him by God about the end of all things. And, and right at the end of Revelation here, 
It's this image of God's good goal, his end is fully realized. And what does John see in chapter 21, verse 1? He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Sea in the ancient world is like a symbol for chaos and evil. So something has happened between Genesis 2 and this point to bring evil and chaos into God's world, and we'll get to that next week. But God is totally committed to this end, to removing that chaos and evil in this new creation, this new heavens and new earth. And and this new creation fully reflects the glory of God. Uh, In verse 6 in Revelation 21, he he said to me, It is done. This is Jesus speaking from his throne. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is fully glorified. And you, did you notice as we read through, there was that really interesting thing in, uh, at the end of chapter 23, how God's glory is seen everywhere. Verse 23 of chapter 21, <laughs> uh, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. So there's this picture here of in this new creation, God will be perfectly glorified and worshipped forever. But you notice here how God's people are here too. There's not just two of them. Uh, Chapter 21, verse 24, the nations walk by its light and the kings of the earth bring their splendor into it. There's nations, it's not just two people, it's a multitude and, and these people are reigning over this earth. You've got that right at the end of the, uh, the passage that we read out in verse 5 of chapter 22. There'll be no more nights. They'll not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. The Lord God will give them light. We've seen that already. But here it has, here's how this ends. And they will reign forever and ever. This people that God has made for himself. So who are these people? Well, back at creation, it was those who were in Adam. Remember that? Those who were in Adam were made to reign over this world. But here, it's not your connection to Adam that counts, not to the first Adam. It's your connection to the second Adam. That's how the New Testament talks about Jesus. Uh, Through his death and resurrection, he, he kind of kicks off a new way to be human, a new humanity. Humanity as it was always meant to be. This end is all about Jesus. He's the one who unites heaven and earth together who unites God and humanity in himself. And that's why it's only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life who enter into this new creation. Uh, Those who are connected by faith to this Lamb who was slain for our sin. Those are the ones who are included in this people. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, Notice how God's place changes from a garden to a city. He changes from a garden, and that's not just because there's heaps more people. Maybe that's got something to do with it. Uh, But there's more going on here. Uh, In uh, Revelation 21, verse 2, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. To this city, there's lots of imagery going on here. But behind all of this, throughout the Bible, 
Uh, God keeps creating people, uh, ways for people to be in relationship with him. That's what Jerusalem was in the Old Testament. That's what it's, Jerusalem and its temple were all about. That's what Jesus came to achieve. And that's what this new Jerusalem represents. This, uh, this imagery that uh, John uses from here represents this relationship between God and his people. Here, finally, God's people can live in this open, face-to-face relationship with their king forever. And that's what you get, the last point there on your notes, God's presence. Uh, It's a presence that's even closer than the first creation. These wonderful verses from chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's God's dwelling place, his settled habitation, his dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Such a tender image. No more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Or again in chapter 22, verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. It's a picture of this eternal relationship of God, with God, this relationship of love with the God who made you in his good world. And friends, I know we've skipped over so much pretty quickly, but that is what you were made for. That is what you were made for, to the glory of God. And that's the invitation you see in this last chapter of the Bible. Uh, We didn't read this out earlier, but later on in chapter 22 of Revelation, it says this, verse 17, it's this invitation, the spirit and the bride say Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of life, the free gift of the water of life. So Revelation ends with an invitation. The story of God and his world ends with an invitation to you to come to come and enter into this reality. And if you haven't said yes to that, you can do it today. This invitation is an invitation to find your true purpose and true meaning, to find life and love in the one who made you. If you have taken this invitation already, then this future that we've just sort of really inadequately skimmed over today But this future is as certain for you as the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This future is as certain for you as that. And friends, there are so many other things that speak to us about our purpose, right? Our end, our goal. The thing that's going to really make us fulfilled and happy. A relationship, an achievement, that possession that we're longing for, that experience that we haven't had yet. There's so many things that will tell us that they are our purpose, our end, but they will never satisfy, not deeply, not eternally. 
That's because this is the end we were made for. This is the end that's actually, as Shannon mentioned at the start, that's actually the great beginning. To drink this water and enter this city and to live forever with this God. Well, there's, this, there's a great moment towards the end of the Lord of the Rings novels. Um, some of you hopefully, hopefully have read those or seen the movies. Uh, there's a great moment at the end of the novels, though, where Sam and Frodo, if you know the story, there's Sam and Frodo, they're journeying towards Mount Doom uh, to get rid of the One Ring and to throw it into Mount Doom to be destroyed. Uh, they're, there's, they're two small, weak hobbits surrounded in this land that's just everything's against them, everything seems hopeless. They're surrounded by fierce enemies. Even the sky has gone dark with ash from the mountain. They're starving and thirsty, and, it, and there's just this hopeless scene. And there's this scene at the end of the book where they lie down in this situation. They lie down and go to sleep. Frodo goes to sleep, but Sam stays awake, and this is what you, then you read this. There, he's lying awake, he's looking up at the sky, covered in ash, Despair gripping his heart. And then we read this. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. And he looked up and he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. The thought smote his heart that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And friends, these chapters in Genesis and Revelation are shafts of light that pierce into our darkness. They tell the certainty that the shadow, as dark and terrible as it is, in the end is only a small and passing thing, that there is in Christ light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. So I want to finish with the invitation of Revelation for us all to come, to come and take the free gift of the water of life and then to let hope, a real solid certain hope based on the solid rock of Jesus, a hope I hope that we will fill out and have solidified for us over the next few weeks. Let hope return to you. Maybe you've lost it. Maybe you've never had it, but to let hope return to you and guide you on. That's what this wonderful bookends of the Bible does for us. Can I pray for us that it might do that in our own hearts? Let's pray. It's so easy, our Father, to have our vision taken up with the shadow, with the darkness around us. But our God, you show us in these wonderful chapters of your word that that is not the way it was meant to be, that's not the way it was created, and it's not the way it will be, that you are preparing this new heavens and new earth 
where righteousness dwells, where we will live with you in perfect relationship forever. And our God, that is this light and high beauty that is forever beyond the reach of any shadow. So help us, we pray, to fix our eyes on this hope that is ours through Christ. And we pray that for his glory in Jesus' name. Amen.